0: Lob talk radio.
1: Glad more, fear less. Divey's late night.
0: We were on fire. i your tires. It's like we burst so bright we burn out. i made you chase me. I wasn't the friendly. My
1: to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and thanks for listening to our Diabetes Wellness with a Wow podcast. Tonight, we're kicking off the new year talking about mindfulness and diabetes with musical inspiration from Pink. Sometimes I really wish this could be a video instead of a radio show because you could see that I'm hanging up in the sky right now doing aerial acrobatics like our musical inspiration. Why not just imagine it? (laughs) And if you're imagining that, let's talk a little bit about mindfulness. A lot of people hear the word and don't know what it really means. Well, mindfulness is a technique used to help you become more aware of moment-by-moment thoughts and emotions in a non-judgmental way. Mindfulness could help you break down the constant cycle of of becoming stressed, anxious, and depressed, and help you accept the way you're feeling rather than constantly battling to try and change it. Could that be your mindset with your uh, newly diagnosed with type 1 or type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes? Well, we'll be talking more about that tonight, about the idea of being mindful. Because let's face it, just a little while ago, we all made a New Year's resolution. And unfortunately, due to uh, some research, 90% of us uh, who made some kind of fitness or health resolution will give it up by this weekend. If that's you and you think that's true, then stay tuned because joining me tonight to talk about mindfulness and diabetes, our diabetes alert dog and scent detection expert, Debbie Kay. Walking with Petey author, can't wait to have him on, Eric O'Gray, poet Lorraine Brooks, Yoga for Diabetes author, instructor, singer, she's got so many titles, she's amazing, she's going to be leading us on a guided meditation, Rachel Zinman, and of course the Charlie's Angels of Outreach with Patricia Addie Gentle will all be with me throughout this podcast. We'll also be featuring music from Grammy-nominated artist Pink. From her Beautiful Trauma album, courtesy of Sony Music, Pink said she named her seventh album Beautiful Trauma because she said there's natural disasters at every turn of life, but there's also beautiful people in the world that are having a blast and are being good to each other. If you experience the rain, you'll be able to enjoy the sunshine, and that's what Beautiful Trauma means to Pink. Now, why don't you take a minute and donate to our Wellness with the Wild podcast by using our PayPal link available on our website org. Thanks in advance for your tax deductible tax deductible contributions. <laughs> now, our pink got her name from Quentin Tarantino's film character Mr. Pink in the 1992 crime drama uh, Reservoir Dogs. Who knew that? That's a good little tip there about our diva inspiration. Her collaborator on this next song goes by many nicknames. Here's Revenge featuring Eminem off her beautiful trauma album, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen.
0: I'm daydreaming. Let me count the ways. How I'll get you.
1: Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedic, reminding you to join us next month, Tuesday, February 13th, during Diabetes Podcast Week. We'll be helping raise awareness and funding for the worthwhile charity, Spare Rose. So find out more on our website at divabedek.org. Right now, though, we're kicking off the new year with a new theme. It's mindfulness and diabetes to help you live your best diabetes life. Over the next 12 months, we'll be talking about different ways of being how of being mindful and how it could help you manage your diabetes. This month, though, I thought we would kick off the year by talking a little bit about being mindful of opinions versus facts, (laughs) especially if it pertains to health studies and fictitious health claims, uh, aka, I think we call that fake news, but let's call it fake health news. For the record, a fact is a statement that can be proven true or false. An opinion is an expression of a person's feeling that cannot be proven. Opinions can be based on facts and sometimes they're even meant to deliberately mislead you and others. So when you hear about a health study or claim on TV or your smartphone and you're at the gym and you're just like, I can't believe that's true like red wine is better than exercise, high protein diets will kill you, or fish oils cause prostate cancer, think again. It's better to be mindful and check the facts, check the sources, do your research, and then why don't you take all that information back to your doctor, rather than just ditch the treadmill and run off to happy hour, especially when you hear that first one, that red wine is better than exercise. That's how, in my opinion, you could start to practice mindfulness. Now, practicing all of that seems like, oh, it's too much work. I can't do it. Maybe the problem is your smartphone, because research has stated that when we plug in more, the more we feel distracted and stressed. With that constant ringing, buzzing, and urging you to check me, check me, check me for Facebook likes, Twitter feeds, whatever it is, uh, Instagram. They also are, are urging you to leave the present moment and do something else. If you're always on instant reply, you're destroying that balance between your work and your life, and when you begin to uh, ha- you, it's at the expense of your health, they say, according to research. What can you do about it? How about have a digital detox weekend? Can you imagine? You have to turn off your phone, your laptop, your TV, and just sit back and enjoy quality time with friends and family and try to rejuvenate or just rejuvenate alone. I've been attempting a digital detox (laughs) weekend in preparation for this show. Actually, I decided to scale back a little bit and – in the mornings I've been doing digital detox. So I wake up and instead of going on everything, I have limited it and on my way to work, I don't even use my phone. I'm the only person on the New York subway who does not have their phone activated. And I do feel that um, I'm much more conscious of what's around me and much more present. And I think uh, that's the beginning of a change because I do get stressed out with the phone, and having to look at all those emails and everything every day. And I think it's so important to kind of establish boundaries in your life and become more mindful. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, straight ahead, I'm going to be talking to poet Lorraine Brooks about being disconnected from moment-to-moment experience. But first, it's time for more music because the Grammy Awards are coming up. Our Grammy-nominated music inspiration, Pink, will be the – Super Bowl started by singing the national anthem before the championship game in Minneapolis on Sunday, February 2nd, but we've got her here right now, so here's whatever you want courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Welcome back to Diabetes Light Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. I've been playing uh, Beautiful Trauma by Pink all month, getting ready for the show. I have to tell you, I love the album. I'm excited that Pink's nominated for a Grammy. And tonight, we're talking about mindfulness and diabetes. Mindfulness means aiming to live life more often in real time. Now it's time to get real with my first guest and talk to the lovely Lorraine Brooks. Hello, Lorraine.
2: Hi, Max. Happy New Year to you.
1: Happy New Year to you, and and thank you for rearranging your schedule to join us tonight for this podcast. I had to quickly uh, change plans when several pipes burst uh, due to that frigid weather in New York City, so I really appreciate everyone, uh, all of my guests, including you, for helping me out tonight and and making sure we got this kicked off January the right way with a podcast.
2: Absolutely, and safety first. I hope that everything turned out well with your pipes. That's a terrible thing to happen. (laughs)
1: It was (laughs) The Adjuster came out today It's not going to be pretty (laughs) That's all I have to say (laughs) about that But you know I had something uh, to take my mind off a little bit As it started over the weekend And that was the Golden Globes And I was wondering if you watched them
2: I did, I I watched part of it I didn't watch the whole thing I saw a great deal of it I did see Oprah's speech Which I was very impressed with And I was impressed with so many people who wore black uh in support of of the cause me too and um um i forget the name of the other one um but yeah i was impressed the time is or the time is time's up? up time's up exactly time's up
1: i was impressed I don't know. That you there was know so i have much, to be honest um, wasn't, i wasn't quite sure what that um i mean i watched it as well and i wasn't really uh, sure if wearing black kind of brought the message home i mean what do you, what do you think wearing all black uh, stood for
2: well i'm not sure what it's Good for necessarily, I just think it was great that they all got together and did something at the same time. Um, you know, I think anytime you can get a, a number of people, especially big people like that, who have other ideas of maybe what they were planning to wear, and then you get everyone together to 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 follow any idea or any plan, I think is just a miraculous thing. I, I was just impressed with how many people there were who Bought into the idea and and decided to support somebody's vision and call attention to it in a big way.
1: Well, they definitely were standing in solidarity by wearing all black and they were protesting against gender inequality and also you know uh, specifically mm-hmm. uh, several of them I know uh, Deborah Messing talked about uh, pay inequality on the E channel and you know uh, there's such a focus on the Me Too movement around Hollywood, but it's obviously affecting. So many different aspects of our lives. I'm sure it is definitely affecting the healthcare uh, profession, and I just wonder um, about that sometimes. About how uh, what's going on with the roles we play and being mindful about that. And I know you do so much work in around this topic about. Um, not about gender, gender equality, but you have done a lot of work in the past around uh, domestic violence and physical abuse and things like that and just trying to help, uh, I would think, uh, tap into this a little bit about how we could all be more mindful in, in our work environments, in our social experience about moving this forward. Because I would hate to see this movement just end on the red carpet. You know what I mean? I think we have to keep having yeah. discussions, and men have to have the discussions.
2: Well, you know, a couple of times during the evening as people were speaking, I was noticing that when people were applauding, the applause was kind of lukewarm. And um, I was disappointed in that because I I wanted to see more men standing up and being excited and being enthusiastic. And I have to honestly say I didn't really see, in my opinion, enough men um, being more uh involved in the in the in the celebration or in the applause and and i found that a little disturbing i i did do a lot of work uh with domestic abuse victims and survivors and um you know sexual abuse is part of of that scenario you know a lot of women are are sexually abused by their partners and even their husbands and uh uh i think some you know the thinking used to be that if you were married to someone that it wasn't possible to be sexually abused or harassed that you had an obligation to you know to your husband or your spouse to do whatever um the the person wanted you to do and that thinking is very very different now um we 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 understand that uh just because a person is married or is partnered doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, you know have to make themselves sexually available And um, so I'm glad to see that we're talking about these things. I think, you know, one of the things that we always try to do is to tell people the important thing is to talk about it, break the silence, say something to somebody, uh, and don't keep it to yourself and let people know this is happening to you. And that's why the Me Too movement is so powerful because how many people are coming forth and saying Me Too, including men, And I think that's another, you know, thing that we tend to sometimes not really uh, recognize is that a lot of men uh, are sexually harassed and treated um, uh, as victims as well. So I was very happy to see uh, so many people talking about it, making uh, an issue of it, and I hope that it continues. I I, I agree with you. I hope it's not just a one-night thing and that we all continue to have this dialogue. It's important.
1: It is important, and you know to me, you know it always comes back to the shame and blame thing, you know, and like you just said about the silence and how that builds up, and it 's almost poisonous and you know we have talked a lot about shame and blame over the years on this podcast, specifically around your diagnosis because so many people. Uh, the diagnosis, excuse me, of type 2 diabetes, um, and we'll be talking to author Eric O'Gray a little bit about his his experience living with type 2 diabetes and how he made a huge health change in his life transformation with the uh, help of an adopted dog, but, you know, this I I mean, if anything comes out of this, that, uh, that idea of solidarity and about the people who might feel shamed or blamed uh, on so many different level, issues in their life I don't want to, I'm not saying that they're the same thing But around the diagnosis of diabetes Because of this podcast I hope they could take from that The idea of what you just said earlier About the power in numbers And the solidarity And, and you know diabetes is invisible So when you look at those pictures Of everyone dressed in black At the Golden Globes And you just imagine that they were all living with diabetes And they were all kind of stepping forward And, and talking about it I think that's powerful and I think you know that's kind of using some imagination, but it's also kind of moving forward and using inspiration to kind of propel you maybe out of your own shame of blame and starting a conversation with either your healthcare um, professional, your coworker, your spouse, your children about it's really what it's really like to be living with diabetes and and who could help you and how they could help you uh, uh, how they could really help you. That's what I want the year to be about.
2: Well, I totally agree with you, and I think that. It, it, that applies to any topic. It applies to your health. It applies to any, you know, any secret or anything that you feel personally shamed or, or responsible for, um, including um, health care issues or health issues and, and you know, sexual harassment and, and treated differently because you're a woman or because you're gay or, or anything. You know, it's it's the same story. It's the same feeling I think that people have when they come out as a gay person or when they come out as a person who's suffering from a particular disease or illness. I reminded uh, back in the days of AIDS when nobody was talking about AIDS and nobody was talking about HIV, and it was very, very difficult for people to come forward and say that they were HIV positive. Um, and, and we've we've managed to, I think, deflect some of the guilt away from that, but we still have a long way to go in terms of of uh, other healthcare um or other health issues including diabetes it's very difficult for many people to tell their coworkers or their families that they're suffering from diabetes there's still a lot of shame and guilt involved in it and i think um one of the things that this podcast does is is try to uh let people know that that there's nothing wrong with with a telling the truth and b uh, you know, asking for support and 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 being real with your family and friends. I think it's all very important.
1: I do too. And you know, I probably couldn't have this conversation because it's such a deep topic. Because unless I had done my digital detox today, do you ever feel <laughs> that? Do you ever feel that you can't put thoughts together anymore because you're always on your phone or you're too plugged in?
2: I do. I do all the time, and I I I purposely sometimes don't. Well, if I'm doing one thing. And my phone rings or I get a text message. I purposely don't answer it until I'm clear in my head because you can get totally discombobulated with all the things flooding you all the time. The the phone, the iPad, the computer, the the real telephone in your house. The, I mean, there's just so many things that I, I do have to back off from it every once in a while. I, I'm one of those people, I have to admit this is my terrible secret. I'm one of those people who actually sleeps with my iPad. My iPad is literally under my pillow and um, i got to stop doing that. It's it's insane. I listen to music, and it puts me to sleep, but then as soon as I wake up in the morning, the first thing I reach for is my iPad. It's terrible.
1: I I, I just made a a big confession. I hope somebody uh, calls
2: up and and helps me.
1: Yeah, no, it's difficult, but I know you, you put this all into a poem, which I'm dying to hear you share with our audience tonight, to help us kind of get back to mindfulness and diabetes, kick the year off right. We've got poet Lorraine Bright. Brooks, gosh, I can't speak tonight. I'm so excited to have you on again for another year, Lorraine, sharing your poem, Disconnected.
2: Or disconnect. Max, thank you so much. Thank you always for your support. And I think it is very important for us to disconnect sometime. And so I've named my poem, Disconnect. Connected, injected, collected, in touch. Devices are sometimes a need or a crutch. If I find myself in the mall with no phone... I suddenly feel afraid and alone. With all this technology right in our hands, it increases pressure and makes more demands. I'm beeping and buzzing and vibrating too. They tell me the traffic and tell me what's new. Weather and movies and amber alerts, baseball and football and music concerts. I have the world in my pocket at will, but often I feel that I'm out of it still. There's hazards to all this need to be known. There's risks to our health, as studies have shown. The false sense of intimacy when we're online is making connections that aren't genuine. There's many days when I just put down my screen, and those are the times when I feel most serene. I put up my boundaries, turn off the sounds, and try to connect with the peace to be found. We all need alone time to take care of us, time away from the hustle and fuss. My message is always essentially this. Take care of you first and don't be remiss. Don't allow life to just fritter away and turn off your phones for a part of the day.
1: I love I, love right you, I have been yeah. at the mall without my phone and I do get afraid and alone. <laughs> I feel afraid and alone. <laughs> so that oh gosh when I read that line I was like, wow, you just you you took a walk in my in my life for a minute.
2: Everyone, I got I get to I, literally I get to the store and I don't have my phone and I panic. I'm like, what if somebody's trying to call me? Or what if I need to call somebody?
1: And don't and tell then, them then, I get, and then I get then I get a hold of myself. Hand. It's a, it's the a land of the dinosaurs for them when you tell them you, you got by with, in life without a smartphone, right? Well, it's I talk myself
2: back down to earth. I'm like, you know what? You're really not that important. You know, leave it alone. So, <laughs>
1: now,
2: have you ever tried yoga? Have I tried yoga? No, but I want to, and I want to try Tai Chi as well.
1: Well, you know, later on in the both. show, Rachel's coming up in a minute. But later on the show, Rachel Zidman, the author of Yoga for Diabetes, is going to lead us on our first ever guided meditation at the end of this program. That's how vested I am, listeners, in mindfulness and diabetes. <laughs> and I hope you stay tuned, because I, I want to see. Uh, I, I want to get everyone's reaction afterwards about how the meditation went. So stick around for that. I will um,
2: look forward to it. Thank you, Max.
1: In the meantime, I've got more Pink music. I mean, she is a powerhouse, and she said she wanted to uh, reclaim the power of the color of pink, especially since she was a tomboy and a token white girl. Our next song, uh, Pink, is backed by a choir and takes listeners to church. This mid-tempo track contemplates her morality and imagines where people go when they go. Here's... here. I am here from Pink's seventh album, Beautiful Trauma, cur- cur- ugh, courtesy of Sony Music. Uh-huh. back to diabetes late night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. I heard that song, I am here, and I immediately thought of my next guest, Rachel Zimman. Uh, tonight we're talking about mindfulness and diabetes. And a new study suggests that paying more attention to the experience of exercise itself even the most reluctant exercisers find that they begin to have pleasure in the movement. Well, if you feel like you're sleeping uh, slipping out of the moment and checking your devices right now, maybe you need some help from my next guest. She's a published poet, musician, best-selling author, and has a new book out on Amazon, Yoga for Diabetes. Welcome back to the program, Rachel Zidman. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Max. Happy to be here. Happy to be to you. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as I heard that song when I was listening to the album, I'm like, I have to introduce Rachel with that song. So I I just love that song. It it really builds, and it's, it's very exciting.
3: It was very exciting when I was just listening then, and I thought, oh, my God, I love this song. I have to listen to this all the time. (laughs)
1: No, it's so funny because that that doesn't always happen, but it lined up perfectly with you in my head, Uh, so I'm excited. Now, you were on the show in December. Uh, We mentioned your book, Diabetes – I'm sorry, Yoga for Diabetes is one of our 12 things uh, for the blue Christmas. And uh, now you're back, and tonight um, we didn't really have a chance to really hear your whole journey of living – Um, with diabetes, uh, specifically type 1 diabetes. So I wanted to kind of catch our listeners up on who you are and what you do. I I know you've been teaching yoga for over 30 years, and you've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes um, for 12 years?
3: Well, no. Actually, I was diagnosed with diabetes about nine years ago,
1: but I didn't know that
3: I had type 1. So I was told that maybe it was pre-diabetes, maybe it was uh, something, some anomaly with my blood sugar, and there was a lot of confusion around my diagnosis because I was so fit and I was so healthy, and my doctor just couldn't understand how I could have diabetes. And back then, even nine years ago, I, I live in Australia, um, they didn't know a lot about um, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. So I actually didn't find out until six years into my diagnosis that I had LADA. And so that was, it was, you know, quite a shock initially to be diagnosed as someone who had been a yoga teacher all their lives, but then even more of a shock to discover that it was type one. And, um, but at the same time, it was just such a relief because all of a sudden I knew that um, all the, you know, places that I've been looking and the people I've been asking, it was like I couldn't get answers. And then finally I had an answer and I could start to really, um, you know, double down and get even healthier because I was really struggling there towards the end to keep my levels in range. And um, I was feeling really disheartened and actually disillusioned. And thinking, well, you know, I'm doing all this yoga and I'm I'm eating this vegetarian diet and it's not working. What am I doing wrong?
1: That's exactly what I want to know because usually we're talking to people who – Uh, you know felt like their bodies let down and they weren't they weren't really fully engaged in their bodies to begin with when they were diagnosed but you're the flip side of, of being so in tune with your body I would think from practicing daily yoga and like you said you're a vegetarian and I what was going through your mind because we have talked in the past on this show about the journey of acceptance with diabetes I've never really had a chance to talk to someone like you. I mean, did, were you fighting it at first, or I mean, you just mentioned disheartened, disillusioned. Was that? I mean, was it? I I would just imagine you just could you couldn't understand what was happening.
3: I was completely confused and in denial pretty well from the start. I mean, I can remember that. I can remember having thoughts like this isn't happening, this isn't true, they've made a mistake, I need to do the blood tests again, you know, I was just, I was just adamant, and they kept saying, no, you know, the readings are high, this is definitely going on, and we're going to keep an eye on it, and we want you to keep an eye on it, and, you know, I started with um, a low glycemic diet, and then after a while, that low glycemic diet didn't work, and then I was told, oh, it's a parasite, you know, you've got a parasite, i was like oh well i better do all these things to get rid of this parasite and the stuff that i was doing was of course raising my blood sugar even higher then i was told by the acupuncturist oh no you know you're not a typical person to have diabetes it's your spleen um we're gonna you know fix your spleen you know and and then i went to the ayurvedic practitioner and he said well um, it has a lot to do with Wi-Fi poisoning and, and put these creams on you, you know, and it just went on and on like that. So as I kept trying and trying and trying, I did get really frustrated with the alternative health um, practitioners. I felt like nobody was listening to me. Nobody could give me answers. And I, and I just kept trying myself to fix it and cure it with, you know, more exercise. And I went into some disordered eating. I started to starve myself because that was the only way I could get the blood sugar down. And then eventually I got neuropathy and I stopped having my A1C tested. I mean, I sort of went from being this ultra healthy fit person to being really in denial and really sick um, because I just, nobody could tell me, you know. So it wasn't until I got the neuropathy and my A1C went to 107 that the doctor said to me, actually, it's type, we, we figured it out. It's type 1, and you need to go on insulin. So, Were you
1: resistant you know, about going on insulin? I just, you know, because so many people don't are, you know, again, we've had so many over the last eight years we've had a lot of people on this show, and before that I've done a lot of outreach, and people are always so resistant to um, the idea of going on insulin. I wonder if someone from your background in health and wellness, what you thought of it.
3: Well, I, felt, I feel like I was uneducated, and I feel like if the doctor had told me more about insulin and had told me how beneficial it is for somebody with LADA to go on insulin because it keeps uh, the beta cells working, the beta cells get to, you know, relax, and the insulin takes over, I feel like if someone had said to me, look, you know, um, it's, it's challenging, but you can manage it and you can travel and you can live a normal life and you can actually do more than you even thought you could. Um, you know, there was no kind of support from the medical establishment for me for me to understand. So they kept saying, you know, well, we don't want you to have to go on medication. They didn't even say insulin. They were talking about metformin. They were talking about other drugs. So, for me, it was like once I actually, um, what I did was as soon as I knew that I was going on insulin, I went online and I started to find out and, and read about it and get information. And um, I realized, oh, actually, this is going to help me. And, um, and, it, and it has. It's been amazing. And I've actually just, I was on long-acting insulin for three years, and I've just started bolusing in the last week. And it's incredible how even learning how to bolus and working with bolus insulin has improved my levels so much more, you know, alongside the yoga, alongside meditation and breathing and all the things that I do. It's been a journey for me of surrender, acceptance, allowing, trusting and, um, and and keeping up my practice. So it's not about dropping that and just, you know, saying, okay, now I'm just going to rely on medication. It's integrating the two and, and trusting that that is, you know, um, the best program for, for most people, I feel, that if they've got the holistic side and they've got the medical side, then they're really set for life to have um, fantastic tools to deal with ups and downs that happen when we are managing our diabetes and now that I'm bolusing I really get it it's intense
1: (laughs) well and I you mentioned a buzzword for me surrender because I think um, that's such an important turning point in our lives especially around our health so you know that you think of most of us think of surrender is just uh, giving up letting go but there is that beautiful thing that comes after that if you're willing to do that and you kind of move forward. So talk a little bit about how you got from that low point to how you began to manage, you know, find just what you meant, you know, find yourself to this higher ground that you were just talking about where you've, you've learned more, you've educated yourself, and you kind of have gone on to kind of embrace that and weave it into your life.
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the main the main point for me was that, two-week period where I was anticipating going on insulin. So I I couldn't go on insulin straight away. I had to go and see a diabetes educator. I couldn't get the appointment. I had to wait for the insulin to come into the drugstore. And, you know, there was this whole process. And it was in those two weeks that I, I went through this process of, in my mind, of integrating and saying, you know what, like, all the things that have led up to this moment have been absolutely perfect they've taught me um, so many things about myself, about how I respond to my thoughts, about how I, the beliefs that I've had about health and well-being. And I found myself doing a lot of um, crying and, you know, sort of feeling a sense of relief, a sense of relief. And I was terrified of taking that first shot, but I also knew that I had to actually go through a barrier. So it was a bit like the sense of, you know, you, you can't go back. So for me, surrender was like, okay, no, I can't go back now. I've got to move forward. And I've got to just take this risk and see what happens and and trust that I'll, you know, land safely. So for me, it wasn't about surrender, it wasn't sort of, yeah, like letting go and going, okay, blah. it was like actively moving into the next thing and saying now it's all about moving forward with trust because i think with surrender you've got to also bring in trust and i i know for myself living with diabetes and and injecting insulin that trust has to play a huge part for me because every night when i go to bed i have to trust that i'll wake up to check my blood sugar that you know that i've given myself the right amount that all these things are in play and um yeah so for me surrender surrender is active and it's also about trusting
1: Well, do these terms come easy for you because of your yoga practice? I mean, do you find – it seems to me that that kind of goes hand in hand with the the practice of yoga, about the trusting, the surrender, and kind of, you know, breathing through these movements and allowing your body uh, to find that other state, specifically through the meditations and things like that. that. Did that help ultimately at the end? Was that really kind of helping you work through this journey?
3: Well, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, for me, because I've done yoga since I was 17, and it's just been, it's like a natural part of my life to go through these set movements, to focus my breath on the movements, to let my mind go. It's not like my mind goes, but I actually bring my mind into a one-pointed focus. And when I do that, a lot of the thoughts and ideas and fears and Um, insecurities they they disappear they suspend for that time that my mind is in that continuum so as that's happening I guess it's a form of surrender because I'm not fixated on a thought or a fear I'm fixated on the breath and it's kind of a, a freedom that happens as I'm doing that and then that freedom actually is me being with you know that sense of oneness, peace, unity. So I guess that the mind training that I've been doing over all those years is just its like a habit that I've developed. So when I feel like I'm having trouble surrendering or letting go, I, yeah, bring my mind into a focus, and then I feel that sense of ease. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm not the thought. I'm having the thought, but I'm not the thought. Thoughts happening in my presence.
1: How is it managing your diabetes with yoga? It is still movement. It is exercise. It can be. I know most of us think it's calm and relaxing, but there are some stressful moves. Have you ever had lows through that experience? Either practicing you know, I or do deepening? a lo- <laughs>
3: I do a lot of testing, and I always check before and after I practice, and my blood sugar doesn't change. But, again, I think that's very much to do with the fact that yoga has been such a habit for me, and I know exactly the, you know, all the, there's no stress for me in any part of the practice. But what I do talk about in the book is that there's not it's not a cookie-cutter approach, That different people with different constitutions need a different kind of practice. So someone who's very fiery and has a lot of heat in their system, and then they decide to do a very hot and a strong form of yoga, like hot yoga, they might actually experience lows because the heat is increasing in the body, or someone who um, is sort of has more water and earth in their system and they're doing a very restorative yoga, you know, a a yoga where they're hardly moving, they might not see a difference in their blood sugar. They might need a more active practice to help to um, increase their insulin sensitivity and, and reduce their, their level. So it's really about finding well, what your type is, what kind of um, constitution you have, what, what the mix of elements is in your system, and then finding the right practice for you. And then you will either, you know, have that effect where it helps you with your blood sugars or for those of us who don't want to have that, you know, don't want to have the, the ups and downs, it sort of steadies the blood sugars, but it's very uh, dependent on the person and who they are and their constitution
1: All right, and now you know you're helping us kick off our year with mindfulness and diabetes. You're going to lead us at the end of the show through a guided meditation. You sent me the link to the video, which I posted online for people. It's the San Kapla meditation. Yeah, it's called. Just tell us a little yeah. bit about it and what people could expect um, before we move on. I, I I want people to know what's coming up. I think it's exciting.
3: Okay, so it's called the Sun Kalpa meditation, and it's a meditation which is all about setting an intention. So it's not a resolution; it's actually something that kind of grows out of your own um, your subconscious, and it's really all about an outcome. So it's like whenever we want an out, like we have a resolution, we really just want the outcome to that resolution. So the outcome of, you know, I want to be, um, you know, fitter and healthier this year might be well-being. So we actually set that intention through a process of visualization and sound and breathing. And that's really what we do during the meditation. So I actually lead you step-by-step to plant this intention like a seed into kind of the ground of your being. And then it just flowers over time. So it's not something we have to actively do. We we set the intention, and then we let go. We surrender, and then it just grows in
1: us. I'm excited. Thank you, Rachel. This is going to be great. Hang on, because Rachel's coming back at the end of the show to guide us through our first guided meditation. In the meantime, we're going to take a break and play some more music. Coming up, though, we're going to be hearing about how adopting an overweight don't. Oh, my Lord. You've got me so excited, Rachel. How adopting an (laughs) overweight dog transformed one man's diabetes life in a positive way. But first, here's another great song off of Pink's beautiful trauma album entitled Better Life, courtesy of Sony Music.
0: I've been up late nights.
1: Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and that was Grammy-nominated artist Pink. Tonight we're talking about mindfulness. You know, mindfulness and kindness are two wings to help you soar to dizzy heights of insightful wisdom, unconditional joy, and deep peace. Our next guest in 2010, at the age of 51, was 340 pounds and wore a 4XL shirt. He had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and he was taking oral medications for type 2 diabetes. He also tried and failed every diet plan, diet book, and weight loss gimmick ever marketed in the U.S. As a last-ditch effort to avoid bariatric surgery, he consulted a plant-based naturopathic doctor who advised Eric O'Gray to rescue a dog from a local shelter. That's a story. Uh, Let's hear more about it with author of Walking with Petey, Eric O'Gray. Hi, Eric.
4: Hey, Max. How are you?
1: I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank <laughs> I, you so I read much. The book. I love the book, The Dog Who Saved My Life, Walking with Petey. It's available on Amazon. You co- you wrote it with co-author Mark D'Agostino, who I know. He um, interviewed me for People Magazine many, many years ago when I first started diabetic. And uh, wow. what a great story. Um I watched the interviews on Megyn Kelly. I want to talk about everything that happened afterwards, including uh, what president Clinton said. But before we get there, I do want to go back to this rock bottom that you hit. Cause that's kind of where the book starts in
4: 2010
1: at age 51, you staged a comeback.
4: Yes. And at the time um, I was taking both metformin and daily insulin injections. <clears throat> so my uh my diabetes was fairly out of control i had a, a like an a1c that was about 12 and a, a glucose around 300 320 and so i tried and failed on every diet program ever commercially marketed in the united states and in all the doctor visits that i'd been on and i'd been on hundreds looking for a solution because i'd been uh morbidly obese for over 25 years so Every time that I went to the doctor, I found that I would go and I'd have this five to ten minute um, uh, interview or, or meeting with the doctor, and I'd either leave with a prescription, a new prescription, or some sort of procedure or process or referral. And and over the time, then I had about fifteen. Di- I was on about fifteen different medications, and it was it was just completely out of control in, in every regard. So one day did when you I went really to the doctor, think,
1: I, I don't want to cut you up, but did, were you did you feel educated about your diabetes? Because you know when you read the book, you kind of come off as a type A personality. You're very accomplished in everything you do, and you seem to not only accomplish it, but you succeed at accomplishing it and take it to another height. So I'm wondering, like back in that time, when you were at the doctor's office, because you're so well spoken, you you are you were a lawyer. Right. At one time. Uh, yeah. Were you were you uh, were they talking over your head or were you able to kind of talk your way out of it? Or did you I mean, did you feel educated or do you, do you feel they did you justice in understanding what was going on with your body at that time?
4: Max, this is a wonderful question. I do a lot of interviews, and nobody's ever asked me this before, so thank you. So at that point in my life, I I had a lot of education. I'd been through college. I had a finance degree. I had a law degree. But one thing that I'd never done is learned how my own body worked. I'd relied upon other people, namely MDs, to to make those decisions for me. I would then go in there and just describe my complaints. And after describing my complaints, then they would – I would rely upon their expertise. So I was really relying upon them to do everything for me, make all my health decisions for me, and I was just following their advice. And that was, I think, ultimately my downfall is not really being uh, uh, personally involved in my own health to the extent that I should have been. So – what 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 happened? Was that just in, because so, you
1: were going? I mean, because it is an amazing story. But it was that because? Because this is this is something that's at the root of most of my listeners' lives right now. Is that point where you're at the rock bottom? Obviously, it's a New Year's resolution. Someone listening listening right there wants to make a dramatic change like you did and succeed. So, what at that moment when was it just because you didn't like you said you were disconnected? Was it? Um, I'm just curious because you were. You know, you were very. Uh, when you read the book, your your whole life changed with socialization and everything. Were you just not wanting to focus on it? Were you not mindful of what was happening? That you just were so busy at work, either working as a salesman or um, as a lawyer defending those clients, that you just didn't have time for your, it. Was all an inconvenience, or was it just that you didn't really want to be a part of the world? Because I I do know that that also was going on in your life at the start of the book.
4: So the the slow decline in my health was an insidious problem that built up and grew gradually worse and worse and worse over the years my weight crept up from you know my uh when i got out of the military around 21 my weight was 180 pounds and then uh it just got progressively larger by 40 i had a 42 inch waist and i was about uh you know mid 250 and then uh, by 51, I was 340 pounds with a 52 inch waist. So the, the problem is, it's a really cruel, gradual process that it happens so slowly that you don't really look, you don't really notice it happening. You look in the mirror every day, and over a long period of time, it's not like you woke up one day and you're 100 pounds heavier than the day before. It's just such a slow process, you don't really know that it's happening, and the negative effects, and the pain, and the mental fog and the the chronic fatigue and everything just kind of built up so that the worse it gets, the more you kind of get used to it, and it becomes your new normal is, is what happens so
1: oh no, absolutely, I, thank you for going a little bit more into it because i just i I think people connect with that story because now, when they hear what happens, they're going to kind of want to come back and realize that you're just like them <laughs> and so now, going forward, I mean, you were eating I think two large pizzas at night home alone. You. We should tell everyone you don't like. You didn't like animals. You never really had a pet. Maybe you did have. I. I don't remember. I thought you didn't. Really. I. I'd,
4: I'd never. I'd never had a pet before. And and okay. what was happening is, so I was sitting at home alone in my apartment, and as I later admitted to the doctor, who really turned my health around and saved me, I had stopped going outside altogether. I'd become completely reclusive. Um, I hadn't been on a date in 15 years. I was single. And I didn't have any friends anymore because after you just stop tell people that, you know, I can't do this because I don't want to go outside. Because going outside and traveling and just going out the front door is such a miserable experience. First, you don't have any nice clothes that fit when you're that large. Everything about your life and your body and your health is miserable. Your knees ache, your feet ache, your back aches. It's just – and when you go outside, there's just such judgment. Everybody either looks at you in horror or – with with a, a look in your eye like, oh, my God, how did you let yourself go that far? Or you're invisible to them. So you're a non-person when you're that large. And, and it's just a, a very shameful and degrading kind of experience. So I locked myself inside and, and just didn't want to go outside anymore.
1: And now here comes Petey. So you go to the doctor because people need to read this book. It, it's really – uh, an amazing story, I have to tell you, I just kind of read it in one sitting. It was so it, I was just fascinated so you you went to the doctor and she said, um, I think you should adopt a shelter dog. You went well, to so, the shelter so, so, and there was an overweight dog <laughs> I mean so and the, the two person. of you went home together i mean it's it, we 'll be talking to Debbie K in a minute about just the whole idea of the matchup with you and the dog? Because it was a very, we should tell everyone, and you did videos on this about how the Humane Society really spent time interviewing you, interviewing you and making sure you're the right person for the dog. It just wasn't like that quick. But I, in the time for this podcast, it's you and the dog are overweight now at home. What was that like at the very beginning?
4: So, so what happened was I, I went to a doctor one time and the doctor told me that I needed to have make one or two decisions. I either had to uh, get bariatric surgery or I should buy a cemetery plot because I'd likely be dead within the next five years. So after that, I decided to get a second opinion, and I did a huge amount of research. I, I, I looked at this then as a life and death situation, and I realized unless I did something to take action on my own because nothing else that I'd ever done had worked for me, that I would likely die. So I did some research, and I found a different kind of doctor, and this was a licensed naturopathic doctor. So I went in and I talked to her and and it was very odd. It was a much different experience than I'd ever had before. She Rather than spend five minutes with me, she spent an hour and a half with me. And at the end of this time, she she put me on a plant-based diet and she told me to go adopt a dog uh, from my local shelter. And that really struck me at the time because I'd never had a pet before. So immediately I asked her, I said, you know, is it okay if I get a cat instead? And she just looked at me and she said, have you ever walked a cat? And I said, no, uh, but I think I've seen it done on TV. So I I, I decided that I was going to strictly follow her advice and do exactly what she said because nothing else that I'd ever done had worked for me. And just to cut to the chase, so I called the shelter. I asked for an obese, middle-aged dog so we'd have something in common. I got the dog. The dog and I went home the first day uh, and the, the instruction from my doctor was to walk the dog for a half an hour, twice a day, or as far as I could. The first time that we walked, we got about 100 yards and came home and had to, like, rest. I had to rest for a couple hours after that because at the time I was so out of shape that I was out of breath tying my own shoes. So after that, the dog and I really bonded, and and it, it, just, it was the strongest feeling of unconditional love and uh, of just uh, the bond of brotherhood that I'd ever experienced before with with a person or an animal, and and so the dog was in such bad shape. Also, he was seventy five pounds; he should have been fifty. I stopped feeling sorry for myself when I started feeling sorry for the dog, and he was Petey. and so we just became ask best you friends. That
1: because they say that dogs make you more mindful. So at that point, when you kind of realize walking the dog that you weren't like you just said you were. You were winded from not going very far. Were you were you disgusted with yourself, or did you feel like your body let you down, or I mean, did it really kind, of, did the the walls cave in for a minute in this at any point in this the early stages when you just didn't feel like you you couldn't believe what your body was incapable of doing or your own limitations?
4: Yeah, I really honestly felt like I was at the end of my life, and this was really it. And um, unless I somehow powered through this and made it happen and got better that I I would be dead within a couple of years. And there was no doubt in my mind about that. So just by following this doctor's advice and doing exactly what she said, which again was a a plant-based diet and then uh, walking PD for a half an hour, twice a day, I was, I started losing five pounds a week and all of my stats improved within, uh, within three months with three to four months, I was off all my meds, my uh, my HbA1c dropped from uh, 12 to about 5, my glucose from in the 300s down to an average about 90 to 100, and at the end of 10 months, just by doing the same thing, the basic exercise of walking a dog from a shelter for a half an hour twice a day and just staying on a plant-based diet, right? I lost 140 pounds, all of my stats were normal, I got off all meds. And that was seven years ago, and I've maintained the same exact weight ever since. My weight hasn't fluctuated up or down more than two pounds per year during that time just by doing the exact same thing, uh, which is a lifestyle, a maintenance lifestyle. And uh, I just felt better than I'd ever felt in my entire life. My energy was extraordinary, and the dog lost 25 pounds also. He, he went down from 75 to 50, and he became just a, a really happy, proud dog.
1: Well, I, 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 this is such an amazing story, and I want to I want to touch on another aspect that you didn't mention. You did not cook when this started, and so she you went to your doctor, and she started giving you recipes. and And it's kind of funny in the book. Uh, you know, you talk about just feeling overwhelmed. I think making the first uh, making beans for the very first time in your home, and now and then you went. I mean, not only did you have that amazing transformation. With from taking a few steps to running marathons. But cooking, you actually ended up going to cooking or taking cooking classes with some of the top chefs in the Bay Area. Talk a little bit about that because a lot of people who are listening again are very much, you know, we're a takeout generation. They think they, there's no way could they – cooking is very intimidating. They think, they're, you know, the oven would make for a better storage space. So, I mean, what, what changed your mind about that?
4: Max, I was on the window diet, which means that if they didn't hand it to me through a car window, I, I didn't eat it. So, so I either had like home <laughs> delivery or food through my car window, or on occasion I would go to the supermarket and buy frozen prepackaged foods. So I, at age 51, had never cooked before. The only thing that I knew how to do really was boil water or use a microwave. So my, my new doctor... Um, taught me how to cook, and and she basically gave me recipes, and what we did was we met every week, and we had a meeting every week, and during that meeting, she would weigh me. We talked about what worked and what didn't, and I'd leave with some new recipes to try, and then she would actually tell me exactly how to prepare these things, and so I did all this, and I actually got pretty good at this following her instructions, so in in terms of self-education, I decided, hey, I'm going to take this to the next level and I I signed up for some uh, plant-based cooking classes, and I learned how to make really delicious, satisfying foods using nothing but whole plants, herbs, and spices that looked and tasted like the unhealthy foods that I previously ate, but these were very healthy and didn't include all the the toxic baggage or the the things that were causing me the health problems and what I'd previously eaten. So, yeah, and then as part of that, I went even further, and because I didn't really know how my body worked, I decided that why, you know, if this works so well for me, why isn't every doctor on the planet screaming this from the rooftops as the primary procedure for patients rather than just starting everybody off on medication? So I went to a local community cl- uh, college, and in night classes, I signed up for the full curriculum of classes that would qu- qualify for the prerequisite to get into medical school. So I took all those classes over a couple of years, which were Uh, uh, chemistry, organic chemistry, anatomy, physiology, etc. And I learned how my body worked. I learned how to read medical journals and how to read food labels and things like that so that I could make my own informed decisions and I didn't have to rely upon anybody else to tell me how my body worked or what I should do to maintain or achieve my health. And it was the greatest decisions that I've ever made, that level of self-education. I'm now very comfortable with you know, everything and and cooking and everything. And I'm just a completely changed person. And it's all because a a doctor really cared. And it's because of a dog that I had a bond with that just turned on my ability, my, my desire just to live again. It was like flipping a switch or coming out of the matrix in terms of the person I was before versus the person I was after. And it was a combination of those two things that made the difference for me.
1: I love it. All right, Eric, stick around, because um, I'm going to bring in our experts in a minute. I want to talk to scent detection expert, Debbie Uh She's a diabetes alert dog expert. She's worked with dogs her whole life about your story, as well as our diabetes educator, registered nurse, Patricia Addy Gentle. But first, we're going to take a minute so they can collect their thoughts and, and register about uh, your amazing story. I love the book. Go on Amazon right now while I play this ne- next song. By her musical inspiration Pink She's nominated for Best Pop Solo Performance At the 60th Annual Grammy Awards Did you catch her appearance in 2010 When she amazed the crowds When she sung Glitter in the Air While being twisted in the air And performing acrobatics Like you would see during a circus It blew me away Well here's the song she's nominated for What About Us, courtesy of Sony Music Let's listen What about I'm your host, Mr. Bedic. Learn what's trending in the diabetes community on a daily basis with inspiration on our Divabetic Facebook page. Right now, we're talking to best-selling author, uh, the, uh, Eric O'Gray, the dog who saved my life walking with Petey. I'm bringing in our experts for this panel discussion. Please welcome to the show, Debbie K. Hi, Debbie. Hi there, Matt. And Patty Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right, Debbie Kay, you just heard this story. It is phenomenal. Uh, I want to get your reaction to it. Well, I've got to tell you, it's not the first time I've heard
5: a a story similar to that. I mean, the dogs that I work with and place with clients uh, have done so many remarkable things to pull people out of depression to help them improve their health. And and, uh, recently I've even been working with uh, folks that have dementia issues. some, some Alzheimer's, some uh, Parkinson's disease, other forms of dementia. And all of the time, the the thing that the dogs can do is to bring about this sense of mindfulness, uh, which is what they're extraordinarily good at. And I don't even think the dogs know that they're doing it, but they're just really, really good at it. And we have a lot of science, too, that backs that up. Uh, recently there was uh, in Science Magazine... Uh, a whole bunch of research that came out showing that just looking at your pet 's eyes, you can uh, develop some oxytocin and, and prolactin hormones in your system and and when you pet your dog, uh, things like dopamine are are released to help you feel good so so looking and touching a an animal that 's next to you you don 't even have to do anything with them you know will automatically start to make you feel better. But I think what what um, was touched upon is the relationship that develops between you and the dog. Whether whether you're an animal lover or not an animal lover, you know animals don't care. They're they're going to they're going to accept you for who you are. It's like, okay, so you don't have to like me, the, the dog will be saying. But that's okay, you know, because I'm going to hang out anyway, and, and uh, you know, that's, that's cool. You know, it, at some point maybe we could do something together if you feel like it. And I think that, that kind of sense of, of dogs just being there and saying, hey, it's okay. You know, it's okay to be who you are. You don't have to like me. You know, I'm not forcing you to do that. I'm not forcing you to to, to change anything or, or whatever. You know, we're just going to hang out together. And and by doing that, people all of a sudden become more mindful of living in the present.
1: And, and that's well, kind I wanna, of what you I were alluding to you know, about um, getting rid of your cell phone. No, I think that's great. Um, you know, is not the only overweight dog. So, Eric, I want to ask you first, did anyone ever consider that Petey might have had diabetes? And then, Debbie Kay, I want to talk about this idea that that dog does, you know, if you own a dog, it does require exercise and maintenance. I mean, it was, uh, there, there's an epidemic going on with overweight uh, pets right now because of how people treat them. So, first, Eric, did they ever think that Petey might have had diabetes too?
4: You know, Max, you're absolutely right. According to the CDC, over 70% of Americans are obese or overweight, and according to other stats, over 53% of all dogs are overweight. So there's a really simple solution. The people need to walk the dogs. But no, so when I got Petey, uh, when he walked into the adoption room where, where I was, his head was hung low. He had skin problems. He had, uh, just was limping. He just really didn't look good. He'd seen better days. And so when I uh, took him home, I consulted with a veterinarian, and uh, I got him on uh, some some limited uh, nutrient diet, and also I moved him into a plant-based diet also. So he was eating a lot of things like I was, like tofu, and this was an, a veterinarian-approved diet. And in addition to his weight loss, all of his skin problems cleared up, and all of his uh, lethargy and other problems happened. I never did have him tested for diabetes, though, even though I understand that is a common condition for uh, overweight dogs.
1: And Debbie Kay, what do you have to say on that subject?
5: Well, you know, uh, going back to science, because being a scientist, you know, I, I do rely a lot on science. Uh, Stanford University did a study that shows that that just getting out and walking, like like we're talking about here, is probably one of the very best things that you can actually do to improve your health. And it's it's one of the best byproducts of having a pet is that they do need to get out and they do need to go for a walk. And people who do that on a regular basis, both they and the dogs, will be uh, more fit and, and not overweight. Um, I think this whole idea of people uh, saying, well, you know, I'm just feeding my dog what it says on the dog food bag. I see that an awful lot. And I have to show them that, you know, they're overfeeding their dog because they're, they're feeding their dog for the weight that they think their dog should be. And I said, you have to look at the frame and the size of your dog and figure out what their optimum weight is and work with your breeder and your veterinarian to figure that out and, and feed them for that weight, not the weight that you think they should be. You know, People look at my Labrador Retrievers, which we breed and use as service dogs, and they say, oh, those dogs should weigh, you know, 85, 95 pounds. And that's not true. Many of my Labradors only weigh 50 pounds. Or 55 pounds at the most, and some of my my bigger and I have uh, air quotes on on that word bigger uh, my bigger males only weigh like 73, 74 pounds, and so they don't realize you know what first of all uh, the actual weight is. They're 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 eat, feeding the dog, and the dog is actually eating more than what he needs to eat. They're they're not exercising as much. And the other thing that I found is that a lot of people with their pets, not necessarily with themselves, don't understand the difference between fat and muscle. And that's one of the reasons why that statistic is so high, that there's so many overweight
1: pets. All right, perfect. And now, Patricia Addy-Gentle, I mean, you heard the story. It is remarkable. What an unorthodox way kind of change your life but i think besides for the idea of a dog we we heard about the small steps making big changes in erica gray's life what do you want to say about that
6: i have just been
1: shocked i guess just overwhelmed
6: with this knowledge of how he was able to turn things around and it's a story that i have decided i will share over and over in the classes that i do I have so many people come to class fitting that description who really need a a lift or pick me up. And I can tell this story and recommend the book. And I think it's just tremendous, uh, the the steps that he has taken and the success that he has had
1: with these outcomes.
4: Well, thank you. You're too kind.
1: (laughs) It's true. Well, actually, both of—I mean, both of them, Rachel and Eric—because Eric, I mean, Rachel's story, we've heard that a lot too about just someone being so um, confused about their diagnosis. Not just them, but their healthcare professionals. She termed the, she used the term "lotta diabetes," which I know isn't new to us, but it could be new to some of our listeners. Can you just explain that one more time?
6: A lotta. Of- is the latent onset in adults of of diabetes. And many times it is confused as a type um, 2 diabetes, and it's treated that way. But actually uh, one of the other names that we hear sometimes is type 1 and a half. But it's someone who develops diabetes, a type 1 type diabetes, when it is um, later in life, not the early onset like you see in children. So, um, it is treated with oral medications or with insulin if insulin is the best fit for for that person and it gives them better results. So, but it is an autoimmune type
1: of diabetes, just like type 1. All right, well now it's time for our our lightning round uh questions with all of you right now. Eric, did you have neuropathy at all in your feet when you were um uh, right before you began this journey? Uh, Rachel mentioned she was experiencing it. I'm wondering if you had any of that when you initially began exercising and how it might have affected you as you continued your program and going into the marathons and things like that.
4: Yeah, I did have diabetic nerve uh, <clears throat> pain and uh, really arthritis and, and various other different things. After my health improved uh, through a plant based diet and just, you know, conditioning myself up to walking, at the time that I got to the end of that, I, all that had disappeared, and, and I assumed, I don't know, and I didn't really look at it or research it further, that that was caused at least in large part by the insulin. I mean, I, I don't know the science on that, I I have to be honest. But uh, all the pains and the aches and everything and the diabetic nerve pain um, all went away as, as as my health improved and my weight dropped.
1: Okay, um, back to Debbie K. Walking your dog seems like a walk in the park, but sometimes when you have an untrained dog, that's almost impossible, and needless to say, trying to run with a dog is even worse. Is that how, if you've never trained a dog and you get a dog, how can you even begin to manage that? Well, that's what professional dog trainers are for.
5: I mean, they're they're there to help you, and there's a lot of really good programs out there. Uh, it's really not as hard as, as people think it is. A lot of it is just applying. The right um, reinforcement and uh, to the to the situation that you want to uh, to have happen over and over again. so we would reinforce the dog for all the good behavior and and just ignore all the bad behavior and what people tend to do um, in, in my observation is they tend to um, ignore the good behavior and then they punish the bad behavior. And, and that's why the dogs continue not to walk very well. But we, we find that you know it's, it takes very little to get the dogs walking nicely on the leash with you, and it's just a matter of communicating and coming up with a clear understanding of, of the rules. When we go for a walk, we're walking. You don't stop and sniff. When I stop and I give you the freedom to sniff, I'll give you a cue that lets you know that you're going to sniff, and now you can go over and sniff and do whatever you need to do. Um, that way the walk goes smoothly and, uh, and, and well. The other thing that we do is we teach the dogs to keep a steady pace. And I work very hard, especially with dementia patients or with the diabetics that are experiencing some necropathy in their, in their feet. Um, I teach them to keep a steady pace. And, and the dogs will keep the steady pace and that helps the people to keep a steady pace. And a lot of times people are walking way too slow. And I say, nope, got to speed it up a little bit because as much as you can. And we, we ease into that depending on the person's condition. But keeping that steady pace is another thing that will help the dog to behave better as you're
1: walking them. I love it. All right, and now Patricia, I want to talk about a smart device that checks your blood sugar without using painful needles. It's called the Freestyle Libra. It's a small patch that you can be applied to your upper arm with a simple scan. The scanner, the sensor will read your blood glucose levels. No needles or blood are necessary, uh, and the the device keeps reading up to 10 days. What do you think about it?
6: I think it's very useful. And uh, tonight's reliable? program, I think it it's reliable. However, if you're getting numbers that are not um according to the way you feel or just numbers that you question, there is still the recommendation that you do a finger stick or you test the blood the a traditional way to make sure that the system is working right.
1: Is it covered by insurance?
6: It is covered by some insurance, but, of course, uh, that's always, when there are new products out, um, that's always one of the factors that, um kinda of, is like a last ditch type of thing where not all insurances will cover it. Not from the beginning.
1: So it's a process. Alright, we'll be talking more about that in the coming months. That's a great new product uh Freestyle Libra. Alright, Rachel you're back in the hot seat. Is this guided meditation hey. require us to be in uncomfortable clothes or do things that might be painful to our bodies?
3: No. All you need to do is just um sit in a chair and uh, follow the instructions. Or you can sit on the floor, you can sit on your bed, you can lie down. It doesn't matter how you do it.
1: All right. Well, we are now in your hands. So uh, um, this is Rachel Zimman. She's going to lead us through a guided meditation uh, to help us all become more mindful about our diabetes in 2018.
3: Okay. So I'd like you to sit as comfortably as you can. You, if you're sitting in a chair, you can just rest your hands on your thighs. And we're going to start with a really simple centering practice just to bring our awareness to our breath and bring our mind into a one-pointed focus. So I'd like you to bring your fingers, your forefingers, underneath your armpits. You're going to cross at your forearms and leave your thumbs out. So it's like you have mittens on and you're just putting your four fingers underneath your armpits, either both hands, left and right hands, to keep you warm. And then you're going to close your eyes and just gently feel the breath expanding into the palms of your hands as you inhale. And feel the breath releasing out of the palms of your hands as you exhale. So you feel the breath expanding and opening the ribcage on the inhale, and feel the breath releasing as you exhale. And as you're doing this exercise, by bringing your four fingers underneath your armpits, you're balancing your active brain with your passive brain, which is also called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And often when we're dealing a lot with our diabetes, we get really stressed. So we want to bring ourselves out of the stressed part of our nervous system. So take a couple more deep breaths here, really feeling that expansion of breath into your hands, and then the release of breath, and just keep going really slowly until you feel like your breath is becoming gentler and softer, and that your energy feels more calm, Don't. so it might take a few more breaths to do that. And then as you're doing that and you feel that calmness, you can just release your hands from underneath your armpits and just bring your hands down and rest your hands on your thighs again. And then just for a moment, be aware of the breath entering and leaving your nostrils. So you're bringing your mind into that one-pointed focus. Just inhaling and exhaling. And then from here, I'd like you to imagine that at the front of your forehead or inside your mind is a blue screen, and I'm going to refer to this as the blue screen of your mind. And without thinking too much or or trying too hard, I'd like you to allow a word to come to you, which is an intention or a way that you'd like to move forward into the new year. So it might be one word, it might be a phrase, it could be something like courage, or more balance, or making an effort to uh, take care of myself more, that might be a phrase, or it might just be more support, better self-care, anything that you think will really support you in the year ahead. And then once you have that phrase or that word or even just the feeling, I'd like you to write, imagine that you're going to write in silver handwriting that intention on that blue screen. So writing that word in your own handwriting in your mind's eye on the blue screen of your mind. And once you've written that phrase or that word, we're going to take that word and internally chant that word. So you almost feel it resonating right in the center of your brain as you chant that word over and over. So when we take a word and we repeat it like that, it's called a mantra. And it helps to calm the mind and free the mind. So we're going to repeat that over and over, whatever that word is for you. And then I'd like you to imagine that you're moving that word down into the area of your throat. So this is the area of communication and expression. And you're going to continue to internally chant that sound over and over and over, right in your throat area. So you might do it three times or four times. And then you're going to move the awareness to the center of your heart. This is the element of air. It's also love and care and openness. And in this area, you're going to keep, again, vibrating that sound internally, that phrase or just the word. And just feel it moving in and out as if it's in time with your heartbeat. And then gently, again, we're going to move that word down to your solar plexus. This is the area of your power and your will so it becomes stronger here and you repeat that phrase that word that intention to yourself as you feel it just below your rib cage in the area of your solar plexus and this is the fire element so we're burning and heating it up now and firing ourselves up and then we move it right down to the pelvic area this is where the water element is This is where it becomes creative and fertile, and again, repeating that phrase, maybe once, maybe twice, or the word a few times, just so you really feel it there, and then planting it right down into the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor is the earth element. And as you plant it, it's like a seed that you're putting right down into the earth. And as you plant it, you cover it with dirt and you let go of the word, completely let go. And just imagine that intention like roots, you know, traveling down, like tap roots deep down into the earth and reaching this almost um, black deep, Soil, And then from there, you're going to sense the sap of the tree, like a tree growing in you, moving up from the pelvic floor, moving up the center of your body and forming a beautiful flower in your heart. So this intention has been planted and now you're growing it into your heart. And I just want you to Imagine the perfume of that flower traveling up into your nostrils and bringing that sweet scent all through your mind so that your mind is clear and free and open and you don't need to worry about the intention anymore. You're just living in that beautiful scent, that perfume of the growth of your intention in your heart. And just take a few moments to breathe that in. Deep and slow. And then when you're ready, just very gently feeling your awareness behind your eyelids. And then just gently opening your eyes and taking in the world around you. And you don't need to worry about the intention. You don't need to think about it again. If you'd like to repeat the meditation, it's really great to do it every day for six weeks just to really implant that intention in your mind and in your heart. But even if you don't do that, it's just a beautiful moment to take into your evening. So thanks so much, Max, for you
1: share I that. loved That's it. Awesome. I mean, I want, to, I want to check in with everyone and see what they thought about it.
4: Uh,
1: Eric, how how was it for you?
4: It was great. I loved listening to that. It was uh, very mindful. <laughs>
1: I love Two snaps. Debbie Kay.
5: Well, I'll tell you what, I even the dog was sitting here kind of dozing off in my lap, so <laughs> I think it was fantastic.
1: <laughs> and Patricia.
6: It was relaxing, calming, a feeling of tranquility.
1: I I, I like that because I really felt like it gave you, uh, allowed us to be in the moment, like just to kind of shut out the rest yeah. of the world and just kind of focus again. Like you said, Rachel, like really focusing on your breath. And just really kind of being in your body, going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier with Eric, and just finding who you are through your body and not having so much disconnect, not just with the world, but with our bodies, which you actually expressed a little bit, Rachel, in your story about the disconnect about, you know, f- struggling to find out what's really going on with you. Yeah, So,
3: you know, what I love about that meditation, and and we did do it a little faster than I would normally do it because I know it's awkward with, you know, having silence when you're doing uh, things with, with a podcast and you want to keep everyone engaged. But what I love about it and, you know, what I stressed earlier is that when we're meditating, it's like as soon as we bring that mind into the one point of focus, there's a feeling that comes over us, and some people call it flow or the zone or, you know, whatever we want to call that. It's actually who we are. We're naturally like that. It's just that we get so caught up in our thoughts that we forget that we're actually that pure joy and that happiness and that peace and that stillness all the time. And what I love about animals is they reflect that back to us all the time as well. You know, I love that, you know, that they're just so – They don't mind what we do because they are just happiness, joy, peace itself, and they're there to remind us. So it's the same when we're doing these practices is they remind us of our true nature, that we are that peace and that stillness.
1: And we are all moving forward, and no matter where you are, I think the message on the podcast today is you can make a change, and it could start slow and it could build to something bigger. And even if there's a struggle somewhere in there, There's lots of ways that you could, um, lots of resources out there in court, including our pets, that could help us manage our way through this. So I want to thank everyone for being a part of tonight's podcast and helping us kick off another year of Diabetes Late Night. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank all my guests. I want to urge you to visit our Facebook pages, check out our videos on Beck's YouTube channel, check out Rachel and Eric's books available on Amazon and Debbie Kay's book. Is, Super, is Snooper Sifter, uh, Sniffer available on Amazon, Debbie Kay, or did they go to yes, your it website? Is. Okay. No, it's available and,
5: on Amazon also.
1: And I forgot to tell them, Debbie K, we're going to be, this spring we're going to be back uh, with our Diabetes Alert Dog Fashion Show at the um, Central Farm Markets. Oh, in Las Vegas. I know. Uh, for, we're looking forward to that. And don't forget, Vandross Festival is in May 2018. I'll be celebrating the legacy of Luther Vandross in New York City. All the dates and all the shows are on our website at divabetic.org. Grammys are coming up. It's award show season, so... Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be your uh, part of yours. Let's get happy, stay healthy together, and let's watch the Grammys because she's going to be on it. Our diva inspiration, Pink, So she's lived by one piece of advice from her father all these years. Always tell the truth. Always be from the hip. You might not have many friends, but you'll never have enemies because people will always know where you're coming from. Here's our final song from Pink, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Where We Go, courtesy of Sony Music.